Today's very special Kate Courtney-centric episode of the Velnies Podcast brought to you by Whoop, the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to the app that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through heart rate variability and quality of sleep automatically track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous training was on your body and see even more data like average heart rate, max heart rate, and calories burned. Get optimal sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and track sleep performance with insight into your sleep cycles and stages of sleep, sleep quality, and sleep consistency. Okay, we've talked about Whoop before. You wear it on your wrist, it uh, tracks your heart rate, and it tells you when you're recovered and when you still need a little bit more recovery. So if you have some hard intervals on uh, tap for the day, check your whoop and whoop might tell you, you know, you didn't sleep that great. Your heart rate's still a little elevated. Maybe give it an extra day. We've been hearing from athletes across the Velo News universe that whoop is helping them with their training by doing exactly that, like telling them when they need an extra day of rest or telling them, hey, you're ready to go and smash it. So right now we have a special code with Whoop, if you want to get 15% off of a Whoop, go to Whoop.com. That is W-H-O-O-P.com. Use the code VELO, V-E-L-O, at checkout. You get 15% off a Whoop. Again, thank you to Whoop for sponsoring this week's episode of podcast. Let's get on to the show. We are back with the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer uh, coming to you on Tuesday. We have a rest day going on at the Tour of Spain. So we are recording this on the rest day. On today's episode, we are going to get you all caught up in what's going on at the Vuelta. Mr. Primoz Roglic has taken a commanding lead in the overall. Doesn't look like he is going to be cracking. We're also going to celebrate the victory of Sepp Kuss, who just a couple months ago was sitting across from me here at the Villa News Studios talking about uh, his rapid rise through cycling, uh, his uh, ambitions in the world tour. Sepp is a friend of the podcast, and he won himself a stage of the Welter. We couldn't be happier. Um, then back half of the show, I am really, really psyched. We have – I'm going to totally just fanboy out here. We have a great interview with Kate Courtney who recently wrapped up the World Cup cross-country overall title uh, with a fifth-place finish at Snowshoe, West Virginia. Kate is coming on the podcast. I have not interviewed Kate Courtney before. Uh, I was the old mountain bike editor at Velo News for a number of years. So I'm pretty psyched to talk to Kate because she's bringing American mountain bike racing back, 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 back. And just just awesome to see a mountain, uh, a mountain bikers from the U.S. like kicking butt, winning world championships, winning World Cup overalls. First time since Allison Dunlap in 2002. Before we get to Kate Courtney, uh, our man on the ground at the Welta, Andrew Hood, is back. Uh, after a couple days off, Hoodie, you are now back on the race. Set the scene for the listeners. Uh, where are you and what is going on in Spain? <laughs> Hi, Fred. Uh, yeah, back at the race, we are in Burgos, uh, kind of a town up on the, the northern meseta of Spain. It's cold, man. It's like a kind of a cold front's blowing in off the North Sea, and it, the summer is over. 
and uh, hoodie is way underdressed, man. I didn't bring any of my summer of my winter clothes with me, and uh, I'm gonna have to hit the sh- shop tomorrow morning. Any any, any uh, money in the travel budget to buy a hoodie or a man scarf? Oh yeah, let me ch- I'll get back to you on that one. I'm gonna have to talk to my accountant on that. Uh, see what a man scarf budget is like this year, but um, you know, for the time <laughs> being, maybe um, you know, napkins from a restaurant you could wrap around uh, your your neck, or maybe socks you could make a man scarf from some of your old Velanue socks. We have plenty of them. Okay, we'll try that. We'll try that because it has gotten brisk. But, you know, it just gets kind of chilly at night. So you got to find a nice little taverna to warm up in, drink some of that nice Rioja. Rest day today at the Vuelta. Some of the teams had uh, some press conferences this morning. Movistar was uh, talking about their plan for the final five days of racing this year. The rest day came on the Tuesday because yesterday was a regional uh, day celebration up in Asturias. So they wanted to have that big stage up at La Cubilla, the Galibier of Asturias. They wanted to have that on that Monday. So that's why the rest day kind of fell on a Tuesday this week. So that means really the final week is kind of a light week really when it comes to racing. We have two transition stages, two pretty hard mountain stages, and then the final little lap criterium in Madrid on Sunday. So you're right, Fred. Mr. Roglic has uh, a pretty solid grip on the red jersey, nearly three minutes to Mr. Valverde. Got some uh, young, hungry riders coming up behind, nipping on Valverde's uh, wheel. So it's going to be really the story, I think, is going to be the fight for the podium. Because it seems like Roglic, you know, it's the way he's riding. He's been very strong, very consistent in this Welta. And it's hard to imagine a scenario where he just completely folds and loses so much time where he won't win the race because – Jumbo was very deep this year at this well. It's a very solid team. And I think Primoz has got it in the bag. Yeah, as we look at GC right now, uh, Roglic, 248 ahead of Alejandro Valverde. He Valverde lost some time um, yesterday in the uh, summit finish to the Galibier of Spain. Tade Pogacar coming up behind, only 342 behind. He's your third place with... Uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, the mind freak, at 359, and then pretty much everyone pretty far behind. Um, yeah, movie star had their presser, Valverde in second place. I mean, you know, Valverde, for all we say about his preternatural ability to win one day races, uh, do you think that he thought that like the back half of his career, he was just going to become like a grand tour punching bag? It seems like year after year, especially at the Welta, he's just like the guy just getting laid into, just getting punched again and again by whichever young, hungry up-and-comer is en route to winning the Welta. I mean, thinking back a year ago to 2018 when uh, Simon Yates, Adam Yates, Simon Yates, Simon Yates, Adam Yates, Dave Yates. Was there another Yates brother? No, Simon Yates was uh, just, just carved up poor Valverde on those final couple stages. I think Valverde, you know, we were talking about him contending for the win and I think he fell off the podium entirely. So poor yeah. poor Alejandro. I think he had some quotes this week basically saying to like, I don't know if I have it in me, man, to like try to win this win this Welta. I think, I, I, you know, he's 39 years old. I don't think it's going to happen for the poor guy. Yeah, I think uh, Alejandro is kind of like the uh, the sparring partner for the new uh, hot heavyweight coming into the sport. That's the way it seems. But the thing is with Valverde, he's, he's always just there. That's why he is there. Because he's always so consistent, he's always following the wheels, and he's he's had a few jabs here in this in this welta. Uh, he tried to attack uh, uh, Primo Roglic the other day on Sunday at the Sanctuario de la Febo. You know, he dropped uh, Pogacar and Lopez, so he still got in in them. So the thing is, it's kind of like 
Valverde won't win this Welta. Roglic could lose it. That's how it might turn out that way. But when you look at the top four, someone's going to come up on the short end of that stick. And man, when you see the, how the race is stacking up and who's going to have the freshest legs going into, into the final week, it's either going to be Valverde, might be the odd man out, might end up fourth again. But hey, man, if he's fourth and he's 40, that's not a bad place to be. Yeah, that's definitely breaking uh, history books and records and making us all – you know, someday we will talk back about uh, Valverde. Yeah, Valverde, there was a great photo that Alberto Contador posted on his Instagram from the summit finish at uh, Alto de la Cubia where he was – you know, had his arm wrapped around Valverde and Contador is – you know, he's in street clothes. He's looking happy and Valverde is all kitted up and looking kind of tired. And I thought the punchline should be like uh, an old man and a retired man walk into a bar <laughs> because I was doing the math and I'm like, wait a second, Valverde is considerably older than uh, Contador. And here's Contador on with like a golf shirt on just being like, yeah, I'm going to go uh, take some, have some beers with some VIPs after this. And you're going to have to go get on the trainer and get massaged and get ready to get your head kicked in by Primo's Roglic tomorrow. Good luck with that. <laughs> Enjoy that. Enjoy that. Enjoy your retirement, Alejandro. Um, yeah. Another big, another big talking point in this in this wealth has been these long transfers. A lot of complaints. Uh, same thing happened on Saturday. Oh no! I've not been following this uh, complaints. I've, I've not been on the race. It has like uh, Gregor and Hoodie and all the other journos. I mean, you guys been complaining about the big long transfers? Well. Uh, you know, we can break them up, but the riders have no choice. You know, they had to come down La Cubilla yesterday evening, you know, come down. They had a long drive to get some teams are here in Burgos. Some teams are in the further down the road nearest tomorrow, near tomorrow's start, which is another hour down the road. So a lot of complaints. People are just saying it's been ridiculous because we have gone literally from within a little more than a week. We basically done a whole loop around the top half of Spain and taken in part of Andorra and France as well. But that's part of the wealth. I remember the one year Chris, Chris Horner won. Uh, they finished that stage Saturday uh, at the top of the Angluter, which was up there by La Cubilla, even further away. And they got into a bus and drove all the way down to Madrid that same night, which is about a six-hour drive oh. on the bus. So those guys weren't rocking into Madrid until 2, 3, 4 in the morning. But you know, you sleep in, the race is over, the race doesn't start till quite late on the Sunday. It wasn't much of a problem. And I remember I asked Chris Horner that, that next morning, I said, hey, Chris uh, – did you have your celebratory uh, McDonald's? Because, you know, Chris Horner loved his McDonald's. And he goes, oh, no, man. We had we stopped at McDonald's after Saturday's stage. <laughs> so, so that's the good thing about Spain. McDonald's stays open late. Chris Horner was happy. And talk about an old guy. You know, he was the oldest uh, modern tour stage winner back in uh, a couple of years ago, 2013, putting Alejandro Valverde to shame by yeah, winning the Welt. Valverde, final. I guess, has well, like a couple more years to go to get to that point. So as we look at it, yeah, like you said, there's five stages left, two mountain days, zero real true summit finishes. So we have uh, set your set your TiVo for Thursday, stage 18. That is the uh, 177.5K looks like one, two, three, four big categorized climbs, four Cat 1s. But the final the final Cat 1 is kind of a plateau at the finish and then big long descent to the, uh, to the finish. So that's a downhill finish. And then we have Saturday's stage, which um, is sort of a death by a thousand cuts type mountain stage where like one, two, three, four, five, six categorized climbs, finishes with a cat three, but not not huge. I mean, Roglic would really have to fall apart 
for anything major to happen. And like like you said earlier, just how solid he's been looking and really how strong his team has been looking. I don't really see that happening. So, you know, we can go on and on about Roglic. We've talked a lot about him this year. But I think there's some other interesting storylines to get to from this previous week of the Vuelta and then um, some of the other riders real contending for the podium. So first of all, Pudi, uh, I mean, we we buried the lead here. We had such a thrilling stage 15 uh, from this weekend. That was the titular stage that finished to the Santario del Acebo, won by Sepp Kuss. Yay, America. Holy cow, Sepp Kuss just Woo. won a stage. I, I saw you tweet out that you know, like, journalists cannot – you know, can we relax the objectivity rules today and actually cheer for Sep? Take me through your feeling. What, what, what were your thoughts when you saw Sep Kuss attacking for the win that day? Yeah, sometimes we have to uh, lose our objectivity a little bit. We can't be complete homers all the time. But to see to see Sep, you know, how fast he's come along and how fast he's developed, you know, really just getting to the road scene probably about, what, five years ago, he hadn't even really even raced on the road. And to see how far he's come in such a short time to win a grand tour stage in a big mountain stage like this, it just it's you just don't see that very often among American riders or among in, any riders, really, for a guy that's 24 years old. And it just to me it was one of I think one of the highlights really of, of American cycling in the last couple of years. I mean, we had a grand tour stage winner at the Giro with Chad Haga, won that surprise kind of Time trial, he played it out in his mind. He said, look, I'm going to save everything for that final time trial. Worked out for him. Last year, Ben King won two stages at the Welta. So it's great seeing this new generation of riders getting these results. They paid their dues. Now Sepp Kuss comes along, a relatively young guy, kind of generates a lot of excitement because he's on now what's going to be probably the best Grand Tour team in the Peloton right there, even with Sky Enios. You got Tom Dumoulin coming on the team next year. Today, Primo Roglic just announced a four-year contract extension. So this team is stacked, and Sepp Kuss has emerged as the reliable go-to super domestic in the mountains. I mean, how huge is that for American cycling? It's huge for American cycling, and it's huge for um, just the possibilities of what it means to be a talented rider. So, you know, this year I've done a ton of reporting around the American system for identifying and developing talent. I went over to the house and sittered. I spent time with the juniors. And, you know, you look at a guy, you look at a lot of the Grand Tour stage winners who we've had over the years, and they have come up through this traditional system of like being juniors, being good juniors, getting identified, going over, spending time with USA Cycling House, going to junior nationals, you know, junior world, sort of being put in the pipeline at a relatively young age. I mean, Ben King, Great example of this. He was a great junior. He was on the Axel Merckx Development U23 team. You know, he's he has cut his teeth in the development ranks and has come along slowly, learned how to be a racer, and, you know, boom, two-stage wins at the Welta. You know, congrats to, to, to Ben King. But then you look at a guy like Sepp Kuss, and it's totally outside of that model. Like, Sepp was racing mountain bikes. Yeah, we, we talked to him on this podcast a few months ago. He was racing mountain bikes. He wasn't really – I mean, he was an awesome cross-country skier, really good mountain biker, but just didn't quite have it to be good enough at the World Cup level. And then, you know, he's like 20s in college and he tries his hand out at some road racing and is just awesome at it and wins some of these big stages. And from that point, I mean, it's basically three years and here he is winning a stage of a Grand Tour. So – 
what I mean, what does that mean? I mean, it, does it mean that oh, we don't need a development system? No, you know, there's only Sepkus is a diamond in the rough. Like the, you know, the guys like him do not come along too often. But it is cool to see that when guys like that do come along, they through you know skill and science can get to the top. And we've talked to Sep a bunch about his meteoric rise. And one thing that kept coming back to mind was like. Uh, in these in these different situations that he'd find himself in in road racing, he'd like seek out really experienced, learned people, and then just sort of sponge up their brain. They, I mean, he was obviously talented, but like he'd ask him a lot. He'd sit on their wheels. He'd, um, you know, he'd find an experienced guy in the peloton and shadow him in a crit or whatever. Because you know, learning positioning, learning all these different things that make you a good road racer. For, for most of these guys, it takes years and years and years. And so Sepp is this guy who's very talented, but like he definitely put in a lot of time and effort into just learning what he had to do. Um, with all that said, yeah, watching him win a stage of the Welta, I was on the edge of my seat. I was yelling and screaming. My wife was like, what are you doing? It's Sepp. It's this the skinny kid who hung out at the office and let us do a research project on him back at the end of 2017. Uh, Sepp, back, back in 2017 when Chris Case did his big uh, climbing sports science feature on him. Ah, Sepp was just like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of end of my season, not doing much. He'd come hang out and just chill at the old Velanu's office. It's just, just like a, just a mellow kid. Um, so three cheers yeah, to I you for Sepp Kuss. Cheers to Sepp Kuss. And I think it says a lot about the Jumbo Visma team that they kind of put Sepp Kuss in this position and really let him have his chance because a lot of teams you'll see them put in riders and never really get a chance to sometimes even race the big races. But it reflects also how the sport's changing when there's – you can see a young, talented rider. They're getting earlier opportunities in their career, I think, to perform. And it, it says a lot about the team as well as about Sepp. He had the ability – with the team had the ability to see the talent that, that Sepp had and really fed him into that squad. Last year, they brought him to the Welta a year earlier than they expected. Remember, last year he did so well at the Tour of Utah – they said, hey, we'll bring him to the Welta because the original plan was for both him and Nielsen Palace, Nielsen Palace to not race a Grand Tour in their first season. Sepp was so good. They gave him that shot last year. And then this year, they brought him to the Giro. Robert Hastings had crashed out. Who was next in line? Sepp Kuss. That's how good he's gotten, how fast he's gotten to be in that position of right there as one of the most reliable and dependable helpers on this, what's fast becoming a super Grand Tour team. And then the, the way the scenario played out up on the uh, flanks of that climb on, on Sunday, the classic move, they wanted to have a body up in the breakaway. Astana was putting riders in there. Movistar was putting riders in there. So Sepp was the guy following the wheels. And once he was in that breakaway, that's all he had to do. He just had to follow wheels. He had to be there, wait for Roglic to come across to him if he needed some help. Roglic was just fine. He marked Valverde. And then they gave him the green light to attack. And six Ks to go, pretty far to attack. And a climb like that out of the breakaway, reeled in some guys that were ahead of him, won the stage. And, uh, you know, he was so far ahead, he had time to uh, high-five the crowd. Yeah, like you said, I mean, it is an interesting scenario where they do give him the green light to ride for the win because Roglic is obviously feeling so good. And the breakaway is pretty far up the road. But, you know, a lot of times in scenarios we like that, we see uh, the radio crackle on and the guy like Sepp Kuz has to wait. You know, hey, we got the GC guys coming up behind. Primos maybe needs some help, maybe needs a bottle. You know, hey, you'd love to like go and attack for the win. 
but uh, why don't you hang on, let someone else take it? I mean, we saw that with Mark Soler on stage nine, and he was waving, and he was waving his arms around, and was upset, and with Yumbo Visma, you know, they obviously made the calculus that hey, this break is far away enough that you know there's there's not a whole lot they can do, and and then Roglic is confident enough, and we're confident enough that we're going to let Sepp have his opportunity. So that was something cool to see as well. Uh, on the site today, we have a great piece by one of our freelancers, Zach Nair, where he dug into Sepp's power files from Strava, and uh, the winning move, um, five hundred and what is it, five hundred fifteen watts for twenty one seconds. Only, yeah, not that Only. much. I mean. <laughs> You know, I mean, it, look, it's I, I, you know, that's that's an incredible amount. But Sepp is so he's very small, he's very lithe, and so uh, to put in a burst of speed like that on a very steep climb, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this Berto, he's averaging sort of in the high 300s, low 400 watts for this climb, which I mean, that's insane. I mean, that's really hard. Max power six six hundred sixteen watts, but. Um, you know, that's not like, that's not like a Vanderpool sprint or something like that. Um, but you know, he, he did what he had to do and he kept it going. And I mean, wait, you know, is it too early hoodie to say Sepp Kuss potential Grand Tour rider for the future? Well, that's the big question. You know, you see him maybe emerging as a rider who could perhaps win a Giro or perhaps win a, a Welt España someday. You know, I think. The way he's built, the way he's made, he's obviously a pure climber. He's not going to be great in long time trials that typically decide what happens uh, on the podium at the Tour de France. But you know, he's a guy like uh, like a Carapaz this year as well. you get a course like that, you get Coos uh, in a leadership position. You know, he might see his chances. Um, I think right now the way the way he has two year contract extension with Jumbo Visma. He's going to be with that team, I think, for the medium long term. Uh, I was speaking with the team manager that said, yeah, we're very happy with Sepp and we wanted to button up his uh, contract extension quite early. He signed, I think, during the Giro this year. Um, you know, his future as a Grand Tour rider, that's maybe biting a little bit too much out right now. But certainly in a weak stage race, you know, next couple of years, we could see a few places on the calendar in Europe where Sepp could be a team captain in a, a race like the Welt at Catalunya. You know, races, uh, but it's going to be kind of crowded at, at Jumbo Visma. You know, you got a lot of guys ahead of him on that hierarchy. So he might, uh, he might have a hard time finding the chances for him to be a leader in a stage race. But I think we'll still see Sepp emerging as one of the best climbers in the world tour and getting his chances to win stages. Well, hopefully he remembers little old Velo News and comes and sees us and sits in the podcast studio. Uh, going forward. So, Hoodie, before we had this thrilling stage 15, uh, two days before, we had stage 13, which finished up the Los Machucos climb, which we did a ton of stories on the site about how steep it is, how the organizers found it. I mean, just a crazy steep, punishing climb. And when I think about that stage, and this, this was the day that I feel like Roglic really solidified his lead because uh, Valverde, Valverde was dropped, Quintana was dropped, Lopez was dropped. And it was really Roglic flexing his muscles and saying, okay, it's a summit finish, it's steep. I am the strongest guy in the race. But when I think about that stage, the storyline that came out, comes out to me was the success of the stage winner, Tade Pogachar, who had already won stage nine, you know, this big, long grinder of a climb in Andorra. And then he comes out on this very steep climb and just just has it, you know, and he, he and Roglic separated themselves and, and, and 
Pogacar ends up taking the win. And we've written about Pogacar. We talked about him after he won the Amgen Tour California. And the the real storyline to me is about how Pogacar and some of these other strong riders of his generation, young guys who are teenagers in their 20s and their early 20s, are being given opportunities to race and win races. And, you know, just a couple weeks ago, you filed your story, which is out in the new uh, September, October issue of Velo News Magazine with a lovely photo of virtual racing on Zwift on the cover. Uh, that's right. We put Zwift on the cover. Deal with it, people. Um, you have this great story called Young and Disruptive, which is all about how these young guys are not just good, but giving, being given the opportunity to win and how that's kind of different. How in previous generations, young, talented guys like Pogachar and Vanderpool and Remco might have to sort of toil in the salt mines for a while, make a mark, uh, buddy up to the right people, play the politics of cycling. So uh, that's my intro to you, Hoodie, to, you know, talk to me about what you found out in researching this story and why things are different today. Why are guys like Pogachar being given the opportunity to race for the win, even though they're only 20? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's always been great young talents that have done well at professional cycling course. You know, Eddie Merckx, he, he was, uh, you know, winning race when he was very young. Nairo Quintana just a couple of years ago. Now he seems old, right? But just a few years ago, he was only 23, basically doing the same thing these guys are. But I think when you look at it now, it seems like suddenly there's all these young guys across all these different disciplines doing so well. Part of it is just coincidental. I mean, you have generations come in. Riders come in. I mean, we had that famous class of 1990. All these, all these riders that were just coincidentally born in 1990. Guys like uh, Sagan, Quintana, uh, Bardet. I mean, there's a huge list of these guys. They're all just kind of coincidentally born in the same year. So it's kind of just part of the the the, the change and the movement that comes into the, to the sport. It's inevitable that we have change. There's a lot of kind of factors that kind of add up to like why all this is happening right now. I mean, one reason. That we're seeing younger guys, writers now, uh, going back quite a few years already, is that when they change the status of the Olympics to going to professional, because in, in the old days, a lot of writers would wait to turn pro until after the Olympics. That's what happened to Merckx, actually. Some of his, you know, he waited till quite late before he turned pro because he tried to compete in that last Olympics, I think it was Mexico in 1968. And so they changed that, I think it was 1996. They took the pros and they created this kind of new U23 category as a result. Now, 20 years later, and you're seeing, you know, what appears to be kind of just this sudden storm of young. I mean, to what we saw with Remco winning that uh, classic sense of SGN, the guy's not even old enough to buy a beer. And he's winning right off the wheel of these World Tour writers, a lot of them coming off top form, coming off the Tour de France. But it's, it seems to be a lot of different factors. Some of it's coincidental. Some of it's kind of this change in the hierarchy within the teams. Like you said, a lot of guys had to kind of pay their dues, work in the salt mines, you know, play the politics at the dinner table, fight to get their spot onto the team, earn the trust of the sport directors. You know, that process would take sometimes years, have like an, almost like an internship or a mentorship on the team. And another big factor, talking to uh, the sport director at Education First, Garate, was telling me how it's just so much easier now to spot talent thanks to technology. You have uh, the power meters. You have a uh, much easier way to uh, to really just test a rider's capability. Just looking at things like Strava. So they're you know instead of going to races and, and uh, you know the old talent scouts watching the race, watching the legs, see how their pedaling styles are. 
the sport directors are going to Strava and see who's posting the King of the Mountains. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, this just that it seems to be that management now really um, see, you know, puts a tremendous amount of value in these guys because they see them as riders of the futures and they see, see these as guys they can build around. I mean, uh, Ineos has famously given Egan Bernal a five year contract, which is a very, it's a, it's a pretty sizable, that's a long contract to give. Uh, in pro cycling. And if they're going to attract these riders and convince them to stay, they want to, you know, the riders want opportunities and they want opportunities to win. And it just seems like management with at least a, some of these guys has given them the opportunity. Uh, what about, I thought it was interesting. You wrote about something in here about how, you know, compared to the old doping era, which was also uh, veterans tended to get the opportunities because they were sort of already, you know, they had their, their relationships with, uh, the doctors and the other people of the sport. And it kind of, if you're a, a new guy, a young guy coming onto the team, it would take you a little while to like sort of learn the, uh, the real way that cycling was working the during that, uh, the dark arts of cycling and, and how some people are pointing at the fact that young guys are having a tremendous amount of success right now as just more proof that, you know, the old dark arts of cycling and, um, having to sort of, you know, get on a team and try to learn about what's really going on. That's, that's not really happening anymore. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think it's uh, part of that because uh, you know some of these these books that came out, some of these uh, uh, first person accounts of of what happened in those days. You know, it was you know they were doing a lot of that that naughty stuff, and it wasn't you weren't. It's going to open up the, uh, the, the 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 treasure chest of uh, of the pharmaceutical department to the new guy on the team until you earned his trust. So I remember reading. Uh, I think it was Tyler Hamilton's book how, you know, he would see his teammates getting certain things that he wasn't getting. And it took him a couple of years before the team trusted him to do that. And I think that it says a lot now that uh, these kids could come in and, and be competitive at the very elite of the sport uh, at 20 years old and not have to really go through that. I think that, that this is a very strong evidence, a lot of ways that uh, riders and the whole Peloton and the whole sport is a much better place than it used to be. And it's interesting because, all those so-called marginal gains that are pushing performance now that some people kind of make fun of or joke about saying, well, marginal gains, but that all adds up. Put those marginal gains, you know, nutrition, aerodynamics, the technology, the bikes, the training, you know, the training's gotten so much better than it was even 10 years ago. And you just dump all that on top of a guy like Tade Pogacar. It's like pouring gas on a fire. The guy is just a natural born motor lungs on, on legs and look what he's done. I mean, he, this is his first grand tour, stage 16. He's third overall. He's won two stages. The guy's amazing. Uh, he, there was some uh, quotes he was saying, yeah, he's starting to feel tired. We'll see if he can last these last four or five days and finish on the podium. But I think the Pogacar is a guy that is surpassing expectations because they brought him in with a Rue at UAE. They weren't quite sure what Pogacar, he came in with no pressure at all. But he's obviously a very smart racer knows where to be and, the, and knows where to move in the Peloton. And just really, I think it's the big revelation of this welter. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm looking at your story right now. You have a great quote from uh, Yumbo Visma's Richard Pluga, where he's saying, too often young promising riders become workers and they lose that winning instinct. We like to see all of our riders race to win at a few points during the year. Now, that's cool to see. I mean, it's it's true. And I've heard that from some of my reporting with veteran riders, too, which is that 
Um, you know, you come in, you're young, you're hungry, you want to make a mark, and maybe you get on a team and they're just saying, okay, well, you know what? We already have a race leader. We already have team leaders. Your job is to fetch bottles. Your, ta- your job is to pull during this section of the race, and that's all your job is ever going to be. And, um, you know, you can kind of beat the passion out of someone if if they're just relegated to doing that. Or you can just, you know, you you take the... You take the excitement of racing for a win out of it. I mean, I know a lot of the coverage we've done around this year with the gravel racing, talking to like Peter Stetna, how he's just been so re-energized because he's doing these races where he's getting getting opportunities to race for the win in a gravel race or a mountain bike race. And, you know, someone like him who's been in the world tour for more than a decade, but has predominantly been a worker bee. And uh, that's just something we're not seeing with no, – no one is going to Tade Pogachar and saying, hey, man, you know, you're 20, you're real talented. That's great. But uh, how about you learn uh, how to be a good domestique and shag water bottles for a f- few years, and then maybe you can work your way out of the mailroom and actually get a chance to be a winner. Uh, no one is telling that yeah. to Tadej Pogacar. <laughs> Not at all. And it's interesting talking to Machin, the sports director there, that, that UAE, he'd already had Pogacar on his radar going back four or five years. They really pay attention at the junior worlds. That's really where a lot of these talent scouts are out there watching the results any one of the bubbles to the top at the juniors are already getting attention from the pro teams. I think uh, Machin told me that they already had Pogachar signed to a pre-contract even before he won the uh, Tour de l'Avenir last year, 2018. So, And another thing, these guys have agents. All these young guys already have agents in their teens. So that kind of changes even, like you said, the business side of the model. They're coming in with these big, longer contracts, coming in with agents, coming in, you know, demanding more money. You know, a guy like Pogachar, you know, he's not going to getting paid neo pro wages. And you're exactly right for him. Like you said, he goes, I want a deal. He has a five year deal as well. I want to be able to race and perform early in my career. And he's surpassed every expectation. But what's happening too is another wrinkle to this whole phenomenon of these younger riders coming in, getting the opportunities to be leaders. That's creating kind of, uh, it's, it's putting some pressure on the middle of the peloton. Mm. It's kind of creating this, this kind of, uh, the sensation, I know when you talked to, uh, I heard your podcast you did with Sepp, talking about how difficult it is to get that kind of second and third contract as a pro. That's where you're seeing kind of guys in the middle get squeezed because you're seeing you have the young guys coming in. Every team wants to have a couple of neo pros, nurture that young, new generation coming in. And then you have your established captains. And then you have kind of this veteran core of riders that have kind of been around, like Tim Martin now, and Jumbo Visma. You know, he's transferred from being the king of the of the time trials, you know, he's he's like sled dogging out there every day. He's he's transitioned into that role where Tony Martin now is the guy who's just out on the front. He's like the new Karienka of Jumbo Visma. He's just kind of hammer every day, 100Ks, even before the TV camera comes on. So you have these experienced riders. Every team likes to have them. Every team has two, three, four, five guys on the team that are well into their 30s early, mid-30s experience where doesn't know what to do. You have this young cadre. You have your leaders. So then you kind of get in the squeeze there in the middle where some pros are kind of getting caught out sometimes. Yeah, it's like what do you do if you're the good 26-year-old and you're trying to take the next step up? And yeah, like I said with Sep, and you know, uh, you often hear this. Your first world tour contract isn't the hardest contract to get. It's your second contract. That's the toughest one to get because, hey, your first one, you're getting an opportunity. A lot of times it's a two-year deal, but you got to you gotta show up and you got you to gotta do something in order to get uh, contract number two. And it used to be that the domestic U.S. scene was full of guys who had gotten that first contract 
but uh, never got that second one for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason. Learning how to be a world tour racer is hard. I, I can't can't judge anyone who, you know, it didn't work out for them. So, but I mean, I think it's an interesting dynamic and that one we're going to continue to watch through the rest of the Welta, through the rest of the season and on into the future, which is young guns getting a chance to kick some butt. Uh, Hoodie, you know, we're talking Welta and uh, you were uh, over there the other day. An American who's been having a quietly awesome Welta has been Lawson Craddock. Now, Lawson, you know, we wrote about him a ton a year ago at the Tour de France when he crashed and broke his collarbone. Uh, I think he was on the long list to go to the Tour. This year was not selected to go to the Tour. was pretty bummed out. Uh, Constellation Prize and going to the Welta. And he's been making the most of it. He's been in breakaways. He's come close to a couple stages. Uh, what was your sense of old, uh, Mr. Uh, Lawson Craddock and how his welt is going? Yeah. Awesome. Lawson. He's having a, he's having a very good welt. He's, you know, he, the, the, uh, EF lost, uh, Rigoberto Oran and TJ Van Garderen quite early. So they kind of switched into uh, stage hunting mode and awesome, awesome Lawson Craddock, a Texan has, has been doing his part of the bargain. You know, he was fourth in the time trial Poe. The next day he was in that breakaway in, when they punched into the Spanish Basque country. I think that day Lawson was the strongest guy in that group. And I think he thought he was probably as well. Pretty disappointed when that kind of stage slipped away from him. But man, it's so hard to win out of a break. I think there was like 15 guys in that breakaway. It's pretty hard to keep all those pieces together and deliver that win. But then even uh, Santuario Febo on, uh, on Sunday in the break finished it off seventh. You know, on the same day that our friend Mr. Sepkus won, you know, Lawson was seventh. So we had a chance to talk to Lawson uh, earlier uh, in the week, and let's hear what he had to say. You're in the heart of French Basque Country, Lawson Craddock. Great performance yesterday in the time trial. What, you know, how important was that for you, and what did it mean for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely really happy with yesterday's performance. Uh, a lot went into it, a lot of homework, a lot of attention to detail from <coughs> from the team, from my coach Jim Miller. Uh, just trying to make sure we're prepared as well as possible. Obviously, I mean, uh, you always want maybe a little bit more out of yourself initially, but at the end of the day, <coughs> fourth in a top trial at the Grand Tour is definitely a good result for me. Yeah, for sure. But I know that uh, the team's priorities changed a little bit uh, with Rigo crashing out. Did that kind of allow you maybe to save a little bit more in these last few days, thinking, thinking ahead to that time trial? <coughs> yeah, I mean, um, yes and no. Um, you know, our mentality definitely, well, our, our goals definitely shifted after after everyone crashed. Or our mentality never did. And a lot of those days, we were still looking for opportunities. And there were good, good stages for us to, to get a result. But in the end, like, things just didn't work out, you know. Um, and it's still hard racing up until that moment. Um, but, you know, even after the Adora stage, we raced flat out. And uh, just once we got done with that, it was just turning your attention to recovery and just preparing yourself the best possible. How brutal was that stage in Andorra? I mean, you guys keep <clears throat> racing some extreme conditions in your career, Lawson, but hail and rain and gravel and mud. And uh, there was a clip, I think, of you going through that section. Uh, just brutal. Yeah. <clears throat> 
But yeah, that day was uh, definitely didn't disappoint. At this point, I think we've all come to expect it out of Andorra. You know, it's in the mountains. It's really unpredictable racing. Um, and you know, it's just you know it's going to be hard. You know, there's no flat road. It's all all climbs, all descents, and um, the weather's really unpredictable. So definitely a tough day uh, for for the entire peloton. The hail didn't make it any easier. It's pretty pretty painful, but at the end of the day, you know, you push through and, and look at the next one. Now, the rest of this well done, some opportunities for breakaways for you. Is it going to be trying to get a stage win out of this for the, for the team? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I mean, we still have a lot of highly motivated guys left. And, you know, this race definitely got thrown up on its head pretty pretty early for us. But, you know, we have this young guy, Sergio Piguita, who's, who's having a phenomenal race. You know, maybe a lot of guys haven't said his name uh, yet, but and I think... Uh, you know, we've all shown that we're we're here and motivated to, to have success. And for you personally to get back to a Grand Tour after last year's, you know, adventure of the, the Tour, it was a lot for you to finish that race, and then to be back here, it means a lot as well. Yeah, for sure. It's a hell of a lot easier doing these races without a broken shoulder. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely was disappointed to miss, uh, miss out on this year's Tour, but, you know, the Welt is such a, just a highly prestigious race as well, and if you're going to have success, you're, you know, that, that really means a lot. So put a lot of effort into making sure I was as fit as possible, and I'm feeling feeling great so far, and the next 10 days are, will be pretty decisive. You've done a few welters. Is this any harder than other welters you've done, or, or some people are saying that first week is one of the hardest ever? Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty grueling, um, definitely taxing on, on the body, you know. You look at every single stage here, and there's no easy stage. Um, and, you know, we definitely feel that. <clears throat> So what rest day came at a good time and, uh, and uh, you know, just recoup, recoup a little bit and uh, try and have a good last two weeks. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks. Always great to hear from Awesome Lawson. I'm going to start calling him Awesome Lawson from now on. Awesome Lawson. Uh, that just awesome, kind of awesome. kind of rolls off the tongue. No, it is it is very difficult to say. Say that three times fast. Uh, well, any um, any takes as we head into the final week of the Welta? Any predictions other than the basic prediction that Roglic will win by ten minutes? What do you what do you see happening? Yeah, I don't know. You know, the the there was a good quote today from Valverde, who said that uh, the mountains of Madrid have buried more than a few riders in the Welta history. It's, it's the kind of twist of this year's route is that the mountains around Madrid, the Sierra de Gredos and the mountains north of, uh, of, of Madrid are featured these two big stages that are at the pack last day, last, uh, four, four days of racing. And, you know, it's not, it's not the Angluro, it's not the big uh, Andorran stage. So some people kind of felt like it's a anticlimactic finale to the Welta. But I mean, I tell you, looking at that, at stage 18, uh, on Thursday, that's almost looks exactly like the stage where Dumoulin got ambushed by Astana a few, a few years ago, 2015, when he lost the Welt on the penultimate day. A little bit different scenario in 2015. Tom Dumoulin was isolated by himself that day, and the difference to eventual winner, eventual winner Aru, and Dumoulin was six seconds going into that stage. But that stage, you know, it has that kind of, uh, ripsaw look profile you know those mountains are a lot harder there's not a lot of space in between each climb there could be some movement there because i think everyone knows uh racing against rope but you can't wait until that last mountain stage because if you do it'll be too late so i think thursday movie star and astana they'll have to move and i think we could see some good fireworks 
And then that stage, that penultimate stage across the Sierra de Gredos, that stage has the most cumulative elevation of, of all of the stages so far in this Vuelta España. So that's going to be a grinder that could see, you know, the last week of a Grand Tour at the end of a season. Everyone says it, and it's almost always true. Things could happen. You know, I think the fight there would probably be more for the podium if Roglic is still looking strong. But <sighs> could be yeah, between. Uh, it's going to be a good. Could be between old Pogacar and Valverde for the second spot, which is kind of insane when you think that uh, Valverde almost twice as old as Pogacar. It's true. There's hope <laughs> for us yet, Brett. That's right. Oh, stay strong, Alejandro Valverde. Well, Andrew Hood, we are going to finish up today with my conversation with Kate Courtney. Um, I will let you get back to your chilly hotel room, and we will catch up in one week time to discuss the thrilling finale of the Vuelta España. Stay warm, my friend. All right. Hasta pronto. Okay. Now I am very, very excited to be joined by our guest of honor on the Villain News podcast this afternoon. Uh, the great Kate Courtney, fresh off her World Cup overall victory, first American in 17 years to win the cross-country World Cup title. Kate, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Kate, first question, of course, uh, how did you celebrate the World Cup overall title? Uh, to give us the details, was there champagne, balloons, a big party? Like, how did you celebrate <laughs> this uh, milestone? Yeah, we definitely celebrated with champagne. I think for me, it was not only a special day for me, but uh, for the entire team. We had Lars take his first World Cup win in the men's race, you know, play second and won his overall title. And then the men were team of the day. So our team celebration started up uh, with everyone on the podium and some good champagne. And I think uh, for me, it really special not only to bring home the overall title, but to do it with such a great support team around me. So, Kate, I wanted to ask you about uh, the World Cup overall and the question around consistency and whether that was really something you wanted to focus on coming into the 2019 season. Was, you know, consistency, trying to be good every single week, was that a big push of yours coming into this season? Yeah, I think consistency is always a focus for me uh, and, you know, making really consistent progress every season has been a focus of uh, mine and, of course, of my entire coaching staff. But I think this year, our goal is really to get a win on the board. Um, I think that's what made this such a crazy journey was truly my goal for the year was win a World Cup. Uh, and when we did that at the first race, I think we had to adjust a little bit and think about, okay, how are we going to stay um, at the front of the field and deal with the pressure of the season and the ups and downs and really peak when it matters, but also uh, make sure that that consistency is the best to put me in the running for the overall. So you come in and have this victory in Albstadt, Germany, and then there's another win the next week later in Nova Mesto. I mean, what are you telling yourself at this point in the season in terms of in terms of the form? Knowing that, you know, form is elusive. Form can be there and go away. Are you thinking like, hey, let's ride this as long as we can? Are you thinking at all about what does this mean for, you know, July, August? What was your what were your thoughts around just the form that you had at that time early in the season? Yeah, I think I came into the year with really good form. Part of my advantage of living in California uh, is having really good winter training. And I think that really paid off at those first two races. Um, but after kind of the big 
high of those events and, and really succeeding there. We also knew that I needed to take a break to be able to remain strong through the rest of the season. So June was a good time to reset. Um, I actually took a week off, which is something that we implemented after after last season when I had a knee injury in June. So I think that time has become really critical for me to take a bit of a mid-season break and then build back up to the end of the season. So while it's, while it's obviously hard to take a break when you're feeling so good and you did your firm uh, really at a great level, I think for me it was really key to keep the long-term goals in mind. And uh, that certainly, certainly showed in Leger when I think I kind of had one of my best performances of the season and really was able to build back up uh, to the same kind of form that I had at Alpstack. So when you think about that Leger race and uh, you won the cross country and the short track that weekend, um, what's the one memory, what's the image in your mind that you think you'll always take, especially from that Leger weekend? Ooh, that's a good question. For me, that one was especially um, memorable, I would say, uh, because in indoor the weekend before, I struggled quite a bit with the altitude. I was eighth and had fought really, really hard even to finish in that position um, after a quick start and dropping back so far. And I think, you know, the question on my mind and, of course, on a lot of people's minds was, can I get back to the form that I had at the beginning of the season? Is this a book in the radar? Like, wh- where are we? And I think, for me, Leger, I really collected myself and um, I think needed another week of, of hard efforts and uh, of racing. And I was able to, you know, not only come out and race really strong, but I think um, race in a really courageous way. I, I attacked with two outs to go in the short track. I went from the gun in the cross country and really um, trusted that it would be enough. Uh, and to be able to do that in the rainbow jersey and, you know, most importantly in front of my parents, I think is what made it a really memorable weekend. Uh, and for me, that was only one of my World Cup wins that they were there to see in the Rainbow Jersey. And so uh, it was it was certainly an emotional and very special weekend. So by that point in the season, four World Cups have gone by. You've won three of them. Uh, is the World Cup overall becoming a goal? Is it a kind of a goal in the back of your mind? Is it at the forefront? Where does the overall uh, as a goal sit in your mind at that point? Yeah, I think at that point it started to become a goal. But I really... Um, try to take it race by race. I think uh, we were trying not to get my expectations um, too high for the season, just to really be able to focus on the preparation and the process and remember what my goals were at the beginning of the year. I think it's easy to have a few wins and then not be willing to settle for anything less than a win. But throughout the season, it's also important to remember how talented the women's field is and how much it takes to be you know, perfect on that day. And so I think um, I was lucky to have both my coach, Jim Miller, and our team manager, Frishy, um, to really keep me grounded and keep me focusing race by race um, while still remembering that that overall goal was within reach. At some point in sort of early August, there was a period in which you had told him, eh, you know, I think I might be, you know, might be not burning out, but getting close to being tired coming around to feeling the fatigue of a long season. I'm curious, what was that moment and how did you talk your th- yourself through that process when you started to feel the fatigue of, you know, having trained and raced and here it is already August and maybe the legs aren't feeling as fresh as they had been a, a month or two months beforehand. How'd you get through that? 
Yeah, that was incredibly challenging. And I think part of what made this overall win so meaningful to me. Um, we were really focused on, you know, one, my end of the goal, end of the year goal, which is to place top eight at the world championships and automatically qualify for Tokyo. So going into the season, that was probably, I would say the top goal for this year. So that next year I can really focus on peaking for that event. And the other thing was we were factoring in, you know, starting to test things for Tokyo. So while the world cup overall is in play, um, we also had these other goals to manage, and that meant that in between the two World Cups in the middle of the season, I decided to go to Tuscany and, and test out some things for Olympic preparation, and we pushed pretty hard through that training block, knowing that's what I needed to be strong at Worlds. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you do that, it's it's hard to recover, and especially during the season, I think mentally, with so much pressure and expectation and also just excitement. Pressure is not always a, a, a negative thing. I think it was just excitement as well. Um, having such a great season, I certainly felt the effects of it. And, uh, and Valda Soul had my worst World Cup finish ever. Um, and that was definitely challenging. Um, and I think for me, knowing that I had Frishy on the ground there to really help me through um, that and, and help me understand that, you know, not you can't be perfect at every race and there are ups and downs this season. Um, and then of course having Jim who's completely on top of that and, and helps me just make a plan to race the best I could at the next couple of world cups. I think I really had the support I needed to do the best I could and, and accept that, um, you know, there there might be a few races that weren't optimal this season. Yeah, it sounds like there was like a, a like a heat. There was like a frishy training camp or like a heat camp at some <laughs> point in there that just was really, really difficult. Uh, what do you remember from that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's been a, been a lot of hard training days this season, but some of those days in Tuscany with you know 100 degree heat um, and really pushing myself to get better, both fitness-wise uh, in training, but also I think a huge push in Tuscany was technical training, and I was lucky to be able to ride with Frishy and learn so much and progress on the mountain bike, and I think um, those are the types of investments that maybe made my hunt for the overall a bit more challenging, but that makes me a better bike racer and that I need to make um, to be my best in the long run. So I think... Well, it certainly made the task a little harder this year. Um, it was a part of the process, and we learned a lot of things that I think will be invaluable in my uh, Tokyo campaign next year. Yeah, you know, it sounded like you, know, you, you, you took some uh, breaks away from the high-intensity training to get ready for Worlds and, you know, felt pretty good going into Worlds. You know, we've had a couple weeks past Worlds. What are your final thoughts on that race? Obviously, you know, it was uh, not your best day. We're fifth place uh, coming in as the winner, uh, and on a really technical. I mean, Mont Saint Anne is such a such a brutal course. But what will you look back on with that race as both high moments and low moments? Yeah, I think honestly, uh, I think it's important to just keep things in perspective for myself. You know, last year I had my best day ever at Worlds and, and won, um, and it was a really special moment. But everything had to go right in terms of preparation. And just how the race unfolded. And I think with the level of the women's field at the moment, um, you, you can't count on that. And I came into Worlds really strong and, and maybe didn't have my best day, but finished fifth, uh, which for me is an incredible result. And I think, you know, had I finished fifth last year, I would have been blown away and excited. 
Um, so I think it was a really solid ride for me. It wasn't my best day ever, but um, I was able to fight and I think, you know, finish really strong on what was a tough mental day, obviously knowing I was um, out of the battle at the front for the rainbows. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that ride. And um, most importantly, I think notching that top eight and being able to, you know, punch my ticket to Tokyo was a huge accomplishment and something that um, is going to be a huge factor next season. So at the finish line of these World Championships and World Cup races, I've been uh, interested to see a lot of times, you know, yourself, um, Yolanda Neff, and, and some of your rivals, like you, you're very friendly to each other, hugging each other, congratulating each other at the finish line. Um, you know, as someone who covered top-level mountain bike racing 10, 15 years ago, I can tell you that's not always been the case. Sometimes there have been rivalries in this sport that extend uh, far beyond what's going on on the field. And, and people could have had somewhat icy demeanors towards each other over the years. Why do you think that's different uh, between yourself and the other uh, top women in cross-country mountain bike racing right now? What, what's your, why do you think you, you know, have this friendly demeanor with these other women? Yeah, I think that's something that, um, you know, has not gone unnoticed in the women's field this year. It's, it's one of the most fiercely competitive fields, but also one where I think there's a lot of mutual respect. And yeah, you do see us all hugging across the finish line. Um, and I think that, you know, each athlete that's racing in that field plays a role in creating that atmosphere. And it's one of true competition, I think. Um, I think true competition is, I hope everyone has their best day and I hope I'm the best. Um, and I think that we really have that in the women's field and it's something special and it's something amazing to watch because, you know, no one hopes that their competitor falls down the rock garden and that's why they win. I think the women in our field want to have a true battle and want everyone to have their best day. Um, and they want to be the best. And, and that atmosphere and that perspective means that I, I'm almost grateful to my, well, I would say I am grateful to my competition for helping me push and achieve more. Um, I think without Yolanda Neff this season, I never would have reached the level that I have reached. And she's been a huge motivation, not only because she's such a talented rider and a very fast defender, um, which has been something I've had to focus on this year, but she's also really consistent. So pushes me to be my best mentally and physically every time. Um, and I think, you know, someday down the road, uh, I'll, I'll have a great race and I'll say, okay, this is Thank you to the women of the 2019 field for pushing me so hard and teaching me these lessons. And I think um, if you interviewed other women in our field, they'd say the same. Yeah, I mean, I was particularly blown away by Pauline Ferrand-Prouvot. I mean, uh, her coming on in the second half of the season and, yeah, like you said, you know, being very gracious at the finish line and, uh, you know, hugging people and shaking hands. But just being so strong in the second half of these races, uh, you know, what were you thinking in the second half of the season as you started to see Pauline really come on and, you know, be inside the top 10, then inside the top five, and then winning these World Cups and World Championship events? Yeah, Pauline's an amazing competitor, and she's someone that I have so much respect for in the sport and who I love racing against. I think, uh, again, with the kind of competitive attitude, we love pushing each other, but are, are always uh, friends when we cross the line. And for me, I think it was great to see her come back so strong. She's had an injury the past couple of years, had surgery at the beginning of the year. And so to see her be able to come back from that is, I think, really inspiring to us all. But I think also at the end of the season, I was really just focused on having my best performances and finishing my season strong 
Um, and certainly at the last race, it was, uh, it, it was an odd kind of feeling, not really racing for the win, but racing for the win in the overall, um, which required a really different strategy and, and, you know, made the focus really on two riders. Yeah. So let's talk about that strategy. I saw the comments you made after the finish line of wanting to go out hard and having it be a strategy. But, you know, let's explore that a little bit further. What were you hoping to do by going out hard? And, you know, were you just keeping your eye on Yolanda or were you looking at other riders? What was the big strategy and goal coming into that race? Yeah, I think the big strategy was to go out hard and, and really make it a battle from the beginning with Yolanda. I think um, that course can be really tiring when you are constantly punching and, and pushing really hard in short segments. And I think that can uh, obviously explode people. Um, and for me, I needed it to be an all-out war. I needed a really hard race. Um, so that hopefully we could get, you know, some riders between me and Yolanda. I couldn't, I couldn't finish fourth and she finished fifth and still in the overall. So I think it really was about like creating some separation and, um, putting in a lot of work at the beginning. So I blew myself up also a little bit. So had to really fight and, uh, and persevere to finish in the top five. Um, uh, but that strategy certainly paid off. So Kate, this is the first. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, first American cross-country World Cup win since um, Alice Dunlap 2002. Um, what were you doing in 2002? What were you up to in 2002? 2002. Hmm. Uh, so I was seven. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was probably, I'm sure I was uh, actually about the age. There's some photos of me on the back of a tandem mountain bike with my dad. And I'm, you know, six or seven years old. And I have little tiny CD clip-ins that's very hilarious and cute um but that that's probably about the age i was when thousand down that was winning eh, cd clippings back then that's legit that counts that's I uh know. you know i give you props for that teeny tiny thanks dad <gasps> you know, do you do you fancy yourself a student of uh cross-country mountain biking history i mean you've talked with Dunlap or barbara bladder or, or some of these uh, other great um cross-country racers from back in the day um watched any of their stuff on YouTube, or are you more above, uh, like, focus on the now and the contemporary racers? I think I'm a little more of a focus on the now person. I, I got into the sport a bit later, actually, to start racing until high school, so I didn't grow up really following mountain biking, but I think one of the really cool things, especially now being on Scott's own team with Frishu, who is such a part of the sport's history, um, I've certainly been getting an education, and that's been really cool for me to be able to appreciate the women who paved the way um, for our side of the sport and have really created a lot of opportunity, um, you know, not only here in the U.S., but in general to have our international field have equal prize money and race on the same courses. And um, I think that's something that I'm coming to appreciate more now. And it's really cool to be connected to them um, through this history of American cycling. Well, you have definitely penned your own uh, chapter thus far into the history book of American cycling. And uh, it seems like that chapter is just kind of beginning because, Kate, you're what, 23 now? 
23, yeah. Hopefully I have a few good years left in me. I think you have a couple. <laughs> I think you have a couple, one or two. Well, Kate Courtney, congrats again on a very impressive season, World Cup overall. We're going to be continuing to follow your progression as you look ahead towards the 2020 Olympics. Um, what last question? I mean, what are you doing this off season? It's just beach time and hanging out, reading some books. What? What's going on? Yeah, I'll definitely take a little down pass, but I think uh, you know, I'm a weirdo. I love riding my bike, so actually, what I look forward to most in the off season is riding really far away and eating a pastry with friends and riding home. So I get to start doing adventure rides again, and, and I think it'll be a, a great off season filled with some adventures. Glorious. Well, enjoy your adventures, Kate Courtney, and we will link up with you soon. Thank you so much.